Hi, everyone. I'm Steve Peck, along with Dr. Edward Lichten, and you're listening to The Lichten Lifestyle. In today's program, we'll discuss endometriosis. Endometriosis is one of the most common gynecological diseases affecting more than 5.5 million women in North America alone. The two most common symptoms of endometriosis are pain and infertility. Some women have pain before and during their periods, as well as during or after sex. The pain can be so intense that it affects a woman's quality of life, from her relationships to her day-to-day activities. Some women don't have any symptoms from endometriosis. Others may not find out they have the disease until they have trouble getting pregnant. But here are some common symptoms. Very painful cramps or periods, heavy periods, chronic pelvic pain, intestinal pain, pain during and after sex, and infertility. Well, today we're going to take a look at how Dr. Lichten is treating women with endometriosis. Dr. Lichten, tell us what we need to know. Well, what we know about endometriosis is that there's blood that normally is secreted inside the uterus that women recognize as their menstrual period. We call this menstrual debris. And this is supposed to flow out of the uterus, through the cervix, and out into the vagina. The problem with endometriosis is, for some reason, that cervix acts like a cork, mm-hmm. blocking the blood from flowing out. So the blood actually flows backwards through the tubes into the abdominal cavity. So the same lining cells that are supposed to be shed are now being shed, not in the, in, not disposed of, but actually putting back into the, into the abdominal cavity. Mm-hmm. It lands on the tube, it lands on the ovaries, it, it lands on the back wall, and it can grow. So endometriosis is endometrial cells that are supposed to be excreted instead have been refluxed back into the abdominal cavity and they grow and they cause pain and infertility. Yeah, definitely. Uh, And so uh, it does affect fertility and childbearing? No question, because these cells are irritating. I mean, blood's irritating. And when you have blood inside the belly, it causes a release of certain chemicals. Mm -hmm. And those chemicals cause abnormal contractions. Uh, They cause the ovaries not to let the egg out. They cause adhesions. And basically, it's almost some, some of the women look like you poured concrete inside the belly. So what are the warning signs? Well, that's interesting because you can't always go by any of the rules. I've had a 14-year-old girl, a black female, who at 14 had bad endometriosis. I've had a 55-year-old woman who had a bowel obstruction. So the rule number one is, is there pain? So usually, while many young girls will have mild menstrual pain, if the pain gets better with birth control pills, that means the disease is mild or not there. But if the pain doesn't go away with birth control pills and the pain gets worse, then the only way you can make a diagnosis of uh, endometriosis is by looking inside the belly. This is called laparoscopy, L-A-P-A-R-O-S-C-O-P-Y. Lapar is a small incision in the belly button with a scope to look at the uh, lining. And inside we'll find red, black, or yellow lesions. Almost looks like powder burn or someone's pick pepper inside the belly, and that's the way we identify level one endometriosis. Now, as you get bigger and bigger areas, the ovaries get involved. The ovaries actually, because they're so high in estrogen, if you get endometriosis on the ovary, you can get what looks like an egg of black, brown, muddy stuff, and Mm -hmm. this is endometrioma, where the ovary is involved, and then when this ruptures, everything sticks together and looks like concrete, and we scale endometriosis from a scale of one to six. 
But are you suggesting there are three stages of endometriosis? What I'm saying is basically it's mild, moderate, and severe. So if it's mild disease, it usually will respond to birth control pills or mild hormonal changes. If you have moderate, you can have infertility, and the pain doesn't go away. And then when you have severe, like I said, it can look like concrete got poured inside the belly, and these women often end up with, with hysterectomy. All right, so for treatments, do you have a treatment per stage? Right, but you don't know the stage until you find out how the response is. So if a woman ends up responding to birth control pills and her pain is gone, she could have mild or stage one disease. If it, The only way you make the diagnosis is laparoscopy. So if a woman comes in and says, I've got menstrual pain, you try birth control pills, the pain doesn't go away, we go immediately to laparoscopy to define whether there is endometriosis. So that's how you make a diagnosis, only by seeing. You can't do a blood test. You can't guess at it. You just, ultrasound can show cysts. Sometimes it can show patterns of severe endometriosis, but most endometriosis is mild. And most endometriosis is treatable, but most endometriosis can only be diagnosed by laparoscopy. The treatment can be expensive. I don't consider the treatment to be expensive. Let me explain why. If someone goes comes to me and has pain, and whether she's 16 years old or 36, and birth control pill or hormonal therapy hasn't resolved the issue, the total cost of a laparoscopy, including the surgeon and the outpatient fee, is under $5,000. And that includes surgery, that includes the anesthesia, and when we're in surgery, we cure the patient or treat the patient using a $100,000 or $200,000 laser. So if we find endometriosis, we can vaporize it. We can cut the adhesions. We mm-hmm. can resupport the uh, ovaries. We can free and push die through the tubes. So for a surgeon's fee that may be at most, we'll say fifteen hundred dollars, I've been in surgery for three hours, and you can fix things to a great degree laparoscopically, and the patient goes home. And for the most part, um, women can be healed of this, cured of this. Is that what you're saying? Well, remember the original discussion I said where it acts like a cork mm-hmm. in the cervix. We have surgical procedures, one that I invented 27 years ago, where it actually releases the pressure so the cervix opens. So if you don't have that cork effect and the cervix opens up, the blood runs out, it doesn't, doesn't run back into the belly. So if you cut and resect the endometriosis, for 70 or 80% of the cases, women go on to have a good life without pain and with reasonable chance for fertility. Mm -hmm. So the outpatient laser surgery that I've been doing since 1981, okay, has been very effective for millions of women worldwide. But at what stage would a woman have to have a hysterectomy? Well, usually that's going to be a stage four, five, or six. What that means is everything is sort of stuck together. We may find that the area behind the uterus has so many adhesions that sex is impossible. We may find the two ovaries are stuck together. We may find the bowel is stuck down. I mean, imagine you have all these loose organs, suddenly concrete gets poured in the middle of it. That's stages when they are most likely to have major surgical procedures because we can't save any tissue. Mm -hmm. Everything is infected, affected. I mean, it's not really infected. It's that all the tissues is... The endometriosis grows into the ovaries. The endometriosis sticks on the uterus. The endometriosis brings the bowel down and sticks the bowel against the bottom of the uterus. But is it the endometriosis that causes the infertility? Yes, and the adhesions. There's three levels here. One, endometriosis by itself changes the way the 
fluid inside the belly. See, your belly doesn't have air in there. It's water. Okay. There's a natural fluid. Now, the endometriosis tissue is very highly inflammatory. You know, like we talk about sugar or, or some kind of um, sticky stuff. And that releases chemicals into this fluid. Now, that means that the normal function of the tubes, the normal function of the ovaries are disrupted by these glands, this tissue called prostaglandins released by the endometriosis. So fertility is affected because the tube doesn't work right and you don't ovulate. Right. That's mild endometriosis. When you get to moderate and severe endometriosis, the tube may be closed over. The mm-hmm. tube may be packed against the sidewall so that you can't get the egg. You may have the the ovary so affected that it doesn't produce any eggs. Mm-hmm. And these are more severe cases. So the trick is catch endometriosis early. So a young girl with severe menstrual pain, and one of the typical descriptions I've heard over all these years is, my daughter is in the bathroom rocking in pain. Her menstrual flow started yesterday, or it's due tomorrow. Motrin doesn't work. Birth control pills don't work. She can't tolerate the birth control pills. Recognize this as a true disease and don't ignore it. And if the doctor says, don't worry, she ought to grow it, find a doctor who's going to take a look. Because it's not normal to have this much pain. So let's say you have it. Now the woman is concerned. Can I have kids? Can they? Of course, we have to find out how much disease. And like I said, the two steps, what happens is we do laparoscopy to look and see if, the, if there is endometriosis there and how much is there. And then we blow dye through the tubes to see if the tubes are open. So if the tubes are open and you've taken the laser and you've cut away the endometriosis, then the instance of fertility should be in the 75% range. And normal fertility for most women would only be in the 80% range. So you're almost, you almost guaranteed good reproductive function if you do the three procedures we do when we treat endometriosis. That's good news, for sure. Yes. So let's talk about the treatments. Okay, number one, we talk about resecting endometriosis. So if you have a spot with a powder burn spot on the sidewall, you take the laser and you cut it out and you remove it. That's step one. Number two, if there's any adhesions or there's any disease in the ovary, you cut the adhesions, you cut out the segment of the ovary that's affected. And number three, a procedure I described in 1982 is we actually block two nerves that run to the uterus. And we call this Luna surgery laparoscopic uterine nerve ablation. Now what this does is it cuts down that spasm of the cervix. What Luna does is basically keep the cervix from going to spasm, which is the cause of endometriosis. You see, there's been a lot of discussions over the year what causes endometriosis. Mm -hmm. And it was in the 1890s that Dr. Samson said the blood flows backwards into the belly, not out through the cervix. And there was a lot of argument of different philosophies and whatever. Mm-hmm. And what we were able to prove when I did the studies in the early 80s is that when we cut the two nerves running to the cervix, the cervix opened up and the amount of pressure inside the uterus dropped. See, when a woman's having cramps, menstrual pain, and she has endometriosis, or she's a young girl with dysfunctional periods, the amount of pressure that is existing inside the cervix is four times greater than delivering a baby. Really? Yeah, so when I did this, when I had all this equipment. You think this is equipment. You should have seen this room I had. I had all these pressure 
catheters we were using for measuring heart pressure. And I put two mm-hmm. of them together with a sterile rubber bands, and we put them inside the cervix of a patient. I just stopped the office. 30 people probably left. They were really pissed at me, but I wanted to get this information. The woman came in with menstrual pain, and she just talked to me. We went ahead and put the probes in. We measured the pressure inside the cervix and the uterus. And where a baby, delivering a baby takes about 100 millimeters of pressure, she clicked off over 400. Oh, my God. And she's sitting there talking to me with this kind of pressure. I mean, you and I can't realize what it'd be like if a stiletto was pressing on our most sensitive area. It probably wouldn't be 400. So here she's talking to me. I'm going, wow. And what I did was I took a little Novocaine just like we would inject if you're going to the dentist. Mm-hmm. And I injected Novocaine in the cervix. And we watched what happened. And the pressure dropped in the cervix first. And then the pressure in the uterus came down to 25. So it dropped from 400 down to 25, showing that the pain the women had with endometriosis started because their cervix was, excuse me, cervix was too tight. And we found by doing the surgery, which I put together for a patient with pain, is um, the results were great. So these women, after surgery, no longer generate these kind of pressures, and therefore they don't have this kind of pain. And this became the fifth most common gynecological procedure in the 80s and 90s because doctors in my field recognized that this pain was real. See, as Colleen will tell you with other doctors she saw, many doctors felt women who have menstrual pain that this is hysteria, hysteronic. This is all made up. And what happened when I invented or discovered the surgery and modification of procedures done in 1955 and one actually done in the 1800s, I called it Luna, so my doctor colleagues called me a lunatic. <laughs> and some are still calling you that. Only they're being nice. <laughs> I need to get a drum in here for a little rim shot action. Well, you mentioned uh, your patient. Let's talk to her. Colleen, welcome to the program. How are you? Good. How are you? Excellent. So you want to talk to us a little bit and tell me how you came to meet Dr. Lichten. And what happened before you came to see Dr. Lichten, because I don't remember that part of the story, so I want to hear it again. Well, beforehand, like you were saying, I uh, I saw probably three or four different doctors tell me, you know, no, you can't be in this much pain. Somebody without a cervix and without a uterus, a man, let me add, but you can't be. This isn't, you know, this. there's, there's nothing that could, could cause you this kind of pain. Mm-hmm. So um, I finally found Dr. Lichten. This started, I'm 12, 13 years old. Um, I would miss school. Um, I was, I, I'd lay in a tub. Like you said, I'd rock, I'd cry. Um, I can't take anti-inflammatory drugs, which would, would be something that would help me, but I, I couldn't take them, I'm allergic to them. So I just had to deal with the pain. Did you recognize what was going on then? No idea. I mean, did, I just thought that this is this is what your period was. I was, I was a kid. Did you start seeing doctors as you grew older, wondering what was going on? Yeah, and it was basically. I was told there's nothing. You know, they, they can't be that bad. Uh, you were seeing your gynecologist, and they were telling you that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they and, can't be that bad. And so there's definitely an emotional effect to this, isn't there, Doctor Lichten? Well, no question. The patient thinks that there's something wrong with her. It's tough enough being a teenager. Uh, the other girls are getting their menstrual periods, and they're not missing three, four, five days of school. Uh, pretty soon your mother doubts your sincerity. Uh, you 
father throws his hands up and after you see a couple of doctors, he doesn't want to send you anybody else. Um, and when you doubt yourself, it is not a good place to be. And I can add to that the the pain versus the the period pain versus the labor. Mm-hmm. Labor was easier. It it was not as painful as the pain I used to have. And you had natural childbirth. Yeah. Wow. You know, women are the stronger sex, aren't they? Oh, no question. <laughs> we couldn't take that. We, we may be third. I don't know who's second, but we may be third. Oh man, I am tipping my hat to all of our women listeners right now. <laughs> God love you, man. Wow, it's all that pain and uh, all these years of having it and people, even your parents looking at you going, you know, there's nothing wrong. I mean, they're actually. You, did you actually get to that point where you felt people were looking at you like you're making this up? Well, yeah, when you go to see a doctor and he tells you, no, you can't be. And he, I mean, he doesn't have it. He doesn't have a uterus. And even if you see a female, <laughs> you know. Well, either do you, Dr. Licton, but you found it. But he's... He knows what he's doing. Anyway, so but the point is, with women, the problem is, and remember we talked about almost every woman will have either menstrual pain or PMS or migraine. Mm-hmm. She'll recognize her symptoms as real, but she won't believe the other two. Mm-hmm. So if you went to a doctor, who, who a female doctor who had migraines, she'll believe the migraines are real, but she won't believe the menstrual pain is real. And this is the problem we dealt with back, you know, 15 20 years ago, 24 years ago, whenever I saw you, uh, that the biggest problem is recognizing that people don't go to doctors unless they really have a problem. Right. So when they walk in my office, it's real. Okay? Uh, that's the point. You don't go because you have nothing else to do. So I don't remember how old you were when I saw you, but you must have been. Mm, mid, mid-20s. Okay. Yeah. So, so you put up with this more than 10 years. Mm-hmm. Well, what's going on with the other gynecologists that she's seen and, and they're not taking the same path that you did? Why wouldn't they just automatically say, look, all of this pain, I mean, it's a direct line, isn't it? Well, remember that we're talking about different philosophies here, mm-hmm. okay? And I believe everybody's real. Yeah. And uh, many men and women don't feel that menstrual pain is real. Even when I put the article out that the pressure was up to 400 Okay, and I showed work from the 1940s that showed the same thing. I gave a presentation to 50 gynecologists. They didn't believe it. Even though I could pull the articles from the 40s and the 30s where they used these pressure measurements, they said, no, nah, they should be responding to Motrin. And I talked to the fellow who did the original work uh, with Motrin, and he would not recognize that there was anything other than Motrin to treat menstrual pain. This is it. If it doesn't respond, then there must be something wrong with the woman. Even though I showed him the data, he said, I won't even look at it. So there is a philosophical point of view for men and women that some women are hysteronic. They make up their pain. Truthfully, anybody who runs after kids all day long and has childbirth, they're not making anything up to me. <laughs> you know, just to be able to survive that experience is something. You know, isn't that nice, Colleen, though? I mean, I've noticed from talking to Dr. Licton, he really does have a lot of respect for women. Yeah, I mean, I, that, I mean, that's that's really nice. And I mean, that's coming through now. And, and hey, that's a good thing to have when you're a gynecologist. Well, it's a good thing to have when you're a human being. So you said there's there's different theories between gynecologists, right? I mean, it's it's certainly in the in the books as, as being a cause. So well, why wouldn't they check for that? Well, number one is in this, you know, a lot of doctors are older. I mean, now I'm one of the older doctors. But in the 80s, even in mm-hmm. the 80s, 
In the 70s, the articles came out about the Motrin and the Ponstel, and uh, Penny Budoff as a family practitioner with bad menstrual pain wrote the book, No More Menstrual Pain and Other Good News, and got enough publicity that the word came out that Elise should give the girls Motrin. And then after that, the articles came out and said, Elise should give the girls birth control pills, and Colleen will tell us whether she was on that. But they didn't tell you, if it doesn't work, believe there's something else. And that's when my surgery reports came out in the early 80s, and uh, I lectured at the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists National mm-hmm. Meeting, and I was expecting to get a lot of uh, you know, sticks thrown at me, and the big professor said, you're absolutely right. There was absolutely no argument at all. Wow. So it, then there's some other discussions further on, but many doctors recognize that removing endometriosis relieves the pain, but blocking the uterosacral nerves takes no more than another minute and a half, and it's something that doesn't hurt. And a lot of women... It doesn't makes a difference in their lives, and the whole point is you do something because they went to your office and asked you for help. So, Colleen, you came to Doctor Lichten. Uh, he recognized something going on. What was his course of action? He did a couple um, other lunar surgeries on me to to burn the endometriosis out. Right. We went through laparoscopy, and we resected endometriosis, and we did the Luna, and it didn't work, mm-hmm. which was, you know, 5% failure rate, and you're there. And then we tried some medication. I'm sure we had you on Danazol and a couple and other. And I, I came in for the monthly. I would come in for the Novocaine injections in my cervix. And, yeah. And Immediate a, relief. But it sounds painful initially. Yeah, but immediate, I mean, a little bit of pain for immediate relief was, was worth it to me within 15 seconds of pain's gone for a pain that could last for five or six or seven days mm-hmm. uh, so the medical treatment we'll get to was first danazol then lupron which is really terrible hot flashes which you i'm sure you'll tell me then we went back to surgery a second time where we tried to do the uh, uh a little different procedure for mm-hmm. blocking the pain and now we're down to a one percent failure rate and lo and behold and i was one of the ones i lost half my right ovary during my surgery. Because she had endometriosis that was more advanced. Okay, I'm losing track here. So she came in, she had the block done. Right. And that helped you immediately with the pain issue. But that, but you do that once, like every, every period. Okay. I would come in. I just, I would call and say, I'm on my way. And there I was, and he would take care of me then. So, so let me explain. What happens is if you go to the dentist... You get Novocaine, you get 45 minutes worth of relief. Right. Okay? What I recognized in the early 80s was if I use the same Novocaine, because we're doing, we're doing this in labor. Mm-hmm. If I put the Novocaine block in, it only lasts for 45 minutes, but it broke the cycle of pain. So she would be numb for 45 minutes, but she wouldn't have the cramps for the seven days. Really? That's, that's cool. It, yeah. it breaks a cycle it, by it, doing that. By relaxing the cervix, the blood would flow out and the pain would be gone. That's awesome. So that's what I did initially to prove that the Luna surgery could be helpful. Mm -hmm. And we went through this for a period of time until Colleen said, let's try to make this permanent. Once you recognize that there's a correlation between a treatment and a course of action, we go in to do the laparoscopy. So we're hooked up the laser and we're going through our navel and we find some little spots of endometriosis and we block the nerves. And the trouble is it doesn't take care of her pain. Because not everything in the world is perfect. So then we go through a series of medications trying to suppress the endometriosis. 
hormone therapies. In this case, it's anti-hormone therapies, how we can lower her estrogen levels. So back then, there's a drug called Danazole, which is a weak testosterone that's mm-hmm. oral. We tried that, didn't work, and then there's an injectable medicine called Lupron, or Luprolide Acetate, which has really, Colleen will tell you, Sherry signal me with her eyes, really severe side effects, really bad hot flashes. But these are the only two drugs we had back then to treat endometriosis. All right. Then when this is failing, we go back to surgery again, find the endometriosis has grown even though we've used these drugs and it affected her over, you asked about staging, so she comes the first time it's a one, now she's a three. So she has endometriosis in in her ovary, so I resect part of the ovary, free up the adhesions, cut the nerves a little different way, and she comes back and tells me. I'm perfect now. (laughs) <laughs> no, 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 no. That no, we missed the point. That's where we the second time was laparoscopy. We came back and said, "I'm not perfect now." Oh yeah. So then we had. To go. I also had very a, a lot of pain during intercourse too. So that was an issue. So it wasn't just during my period. This also caused a lot of other. But you can tell tell the listeners about what it was like taking the Danazol and the Lupron. It, it was like being a crazy person. Really? Yeah. Uh, night sweats. It, it, December window open. Why is that? What What's going on chemically to make that happen? We're making menopause to dry out the endometriosis. Oh, okay. So we've blocked all the estrogen, and the brain's going crazy saying, where is the estrogen? So she's getting hot flashes to beat the ban. I mean, menopause will be easier than what happens because we're dropping the estrogen level lower than a menopause, trying to let the endometriosis burn itself out. So we've now gone through four different drug therapies. She can't take the Motrin. She's taken birth control pills. She's taken Danazol. She's taken Lupron. There ain't anything else. She's had two laparoscopic procedures You know, with, some, with one of the guys who was the first one to use laser in the Midwest. That's me. And our hospital, Sinai Hospital, had the first laser. So we had them before Chicago had them. And I was the first one to hook up a laser in 1981 here. So a lot of experience with laser laparoscopy, a surgical procedure that I invented, and she's still not better. So the story goes, there's one more surgical procedure. Actually was invented in 1929. And it's called a presacral neurectomy. And what actually you do is you go in and you find the nerves that are going to run into the pelvis and you interrupt them. It's called a neurectomy. We actually, you hear the same thing with the stomach. If you have stomach ulcers, there's something called a vagotomy. Mm-hmm. Well, this is called a presacral neurectomy. It was actually described in the 1920s, and it was very popular until the 1950s and then fell into, you know, Never Never Land. It's a difficult surgery. You, you're actually cutting right around the aorta. But Colleen had gone through everything else, so I had suggested a presacral neurectomy. And uh, you know, I do a reasonable number of these because I've taken care of probably almost 3,000 women with endometriosis over the recent past. And... Um, I mean, she would have done anything. I, I think a few times you asked me to do a hysterectomy, but uh, yeah, but I didn't have children, so and I said, let's keep trying. And this it changed my life. How? Tell us how. Well, I could have sex without pain. Um, my periods didn't. You know, I wasn't rocking back and forth, laying in bed crying. I mean, it completely changed my life. I was. I felt free. Prior to that, when you're going through all of those surgeries and they weren't working, that must have been pretty frustrating. I because mean, each surgery you're going into with a, a degree of hope, right? Right, and I, you know, and I think I would have a for for a short time I would have 
some relief. And then, you know, it start growing again. It's like, oh, here it comes. Yeah. Same with you, Dr. Lichten. I mean, you're doing these surgeries, so you have an expectancy that things are going to get better as well. And then when a patient comes back and says, uh-oh. Then well, you-, you know me by now. So if I see 98, if I see 100 with endometriosis and pain and 98 said you're great and two aren't cured, I go home saying I haven't I failed mm-hmm. uh, it's a personality flaw that I'll have to live with but <laughs> it's a good with, one to have if it's but, your doctor but, but Colleen knows that I didn't say it's your fault it's uh, something wrong with you the pain's never is re- not real uh, I never say that to patients I say it's real uh, we'll just have to find a different way of doing it and I've probably done 75 prenatal so figure how many women that would be. And, and we've done really well with this as a surgical interruption that very few doctors still know how to do. And like I said, it's actually dissecting between the colon and the vena cava and the aorta to get to the nerves. And we actually sometimes even do this laparoscopically now. You know, as a sidebar to what you just said, I think of doctors saying that a lot. Man, I've done a thousand of these or a hundred of these. I'm thinking, what was the first one like? What is it like the first time you do a surgery that you've never done before? Scary? Well, you know the anatomy. I mean, my training was such that I did most of the gynecology cancer surgery at Ohio State for three Mm -hmm. years because my seniors didn't want to. I went to Sloan Kettering in New York as a cancer fellow. Uh, so, you know, I've been in that pelvis backwards and forwards and up and down, resected and fixed holes and colons, actually took out a kidney. I mean, my GYN training was a lot more than most gynecologists. So when I'm in an area like that, I've been there before because this is where we would resect the nodes in cancer patients. So knowing what the anatomy is, you know, the first time you're a little more gingerly and more and more cases but there's probably aren't too many people in, in, in the world have done 75 presacronorectomies. And remember, this is for the 1% or 2% failure rate. Mm-hmm. So the number of cases of endometriosis starts getting in the thousands and knowing that you still have courses of action you can do. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you don't have a gynecologist who is comfortable doing this, then you ask him to have a cancer specialist scrub in. Because the oncology GYN cancer specialist will be able to help do this. It's just now we've gotten to the point with some patients who are thin, we're able to do this through a laparoscope. And this is almost like the robotic surgery. We're going through very, very fine tissue with two or three instruments to get to these nerve base. And for most of them, uh, I've had a tremendous success with presacral And the thing you have to understand is in the literature, and we're talking about the whole medical literature, it says... This is the definitive treatment for endometriosis. If nothing else works, presacronorectomy is the last stop. Large databases show that this is successful. And the Cochrane database reported on my Luna surgery, and this mm-hmm. is, you know, so they're reporting on 40 articles written after I described this Luna surgery. And the results were, for the first few months, really good. It's just Luna doesn't seem to work for everybody for a long period of time, but presacronorectomy does. But if, if you go ahead and do a Luna surgery and the woman comes out and gets pregnant within the next two or three years, the cervix is stretched open and they don't have a situation of pain usually once the cervix opens up and the blood starts to flow out. Gotcha. You know, we talk a lot about hormones on this program. What are the roles that hormones play in endometriosis? Well, I just came off the phone two weeks ago talking to Mary Lou Balwig who's the president of the Endometriosis Association. And she and I go back to 
when I started lecturing on this in the early 80s. So I called Mary just a few weeks ago and told her about the new discovery I have. We now have a hormonal therapy we didn't have back even three, four years ago. And this is working for the cases even of presacral neurectomy that fail. So at this point in time, a woman comes in with menstrual pain. If she doesn't have endometriosis that is visible on ultrasound, we're able to suppress it with a combination of the new androgens. So now we have a way of blocking endometriosis using the testosterone derivatives and the injections better and more effectively than Danazole without any hot flashes. Explain that to me. What are you, what are you doing there to make all of that happen? Okay. As we've talked about with the other hormonal therapies, mm-hmm. you have to understand that estrogen and testosterone compete to get into the cell. Right. The boy and girl are competing to get to the cookie jar. Mm-hmm. Testosterone is stronger and faster and gets those cookies faster if there's only a small number of doors to get through. But if there's a lot of doors, the guy runs through the doors, he's run through a lot of the wrong doors if there's too many doors. And this is called sex hormone binding globulin. We now have figured out a way to reduce the number of options by lowering the sex hormone binding. It ensures testosterone gets in there. What that means is she will not have hot flashes, but she also won't have any lining. And the endometriosis disappears because it's suppressed because the estrogen levels drop, but there's no hot flash. We actually put testosterone into the cells instead of the estrogen, and the endometriosis burns out. And it is more efficient than Lupron. It's more efficient than Danazole. It's so efficient that I have only had one laparoscopy in the last five years, and that was from adhesions that I went in to operate on one with endometriosis. The other cases are suppressing to where I don't even have to operate. Well, that's amazing. I mean, that, yeah. that's the good first step now, right? Yeah, this is an evolution of 26 years of working with breakthroughs in endometriosis. So, yes, for your date and time, we did great for you. You got pregnant. You had a baby, which was easier than menstrual pain. But if you came to my office today, the odds are even better that you would never even have to go past the stage of laparoscopy. That's exciting. Yeah. Good it, news. It's fun be doing what I do. So for our listeners all around the country, if they don't have you as their doctor, what do they look for in their doctor or one they're looking for? Oh, they need to find them. I need to find Dr. Lichten? Yeah. Just come here. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, you know what? A lot of our listeners have done that. They've got on a plane, and uh, there's a hotel, a beautiful hotel right across the street. They come in and see you from all over the world. Yes, but start with what's simple. One, talk to your gynecologist. If the gynecologist is reasonable, they'll understand that endometriosis hurts. Step two, birth control pills and Motrin. If that doesn't work, laparoscopy. When we have the pictures, we can make decisions. I do video and uh, email uh, consults all the time. So people send me pictures, I'll look at them and ask them if they do this. Usually if I talk to the gynecologist and he's a laser gynecologist, we call this an operative gynecologist, mm-hmm. one who actually knows and knows how to use a laser, they'll recognize my name, they recognize the surgery. We talk about doing the Luna surgery to start with. Uh, and that usually is going to be helpful for 90% of the patients. Now, the ones who are more advanced pain, they can decide whether they want to stay with their local doctor, whether they're interested in the presacral neurectomy. Again, stay where you are, have a GYN oncologist come in, think about an open procedure, unless there's a gynecologist or infertility doctor who knows how to do a laparoscopic procedure. If you find the presacral neurectomy fails, the medicine I have is under protocol here, you can't get anyplace else, 
Uh, it's it's part of a research study. The results have been fantastic. We had uh, Leanne just a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. She's on the drug. No, oh, she okay. was a presacralectomy failure, and she took the medicine and went for six months without having any periods or any cramps after stopping the medicine. So we're getting some complete suppression of disease that actually should change the whole course of the treatment of disease even more than what we've done in the last 25 years. That is so cool. So if you're one of those suffering, uh, you might want to pick up the phone and call Dr. Lichten. His phone number, 248-593-9999. Call him. He can help you. 248-593-9999. All right, Colleen, thanks a lot for being on the show. I appreciate all of your input. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Always nice talking to your patients. It was nice to have Colleen in here, Dr. Lichten. It's always uh, fun to hear that you've done something that changed someone's life. Yeah. And it starts by just, you know, believing that it's real and do whatever you can to maintain hope because people should have lives without pain. Yeah, and that's the word that keeps coming up in a lot of our podcasts. Hope. I mean, it's a little thing, or it sounds like a little thing, but it's huge. I mean, so many of our listeners just want hope. They don't want a doctor saying... There's no hope. Yeah, and that's absolutely, it should be a sin. I mean, the bottom line is, if you can't say anything good, don't say anything at all. But at least if you can't offer the solution, send them someplace else where they can get answers. Hey, we've got other listeners out there that want to hear from you, Dr. Lichten. Cheryl from Billings, Montana, wrote us at usdoctorradio at gmail.com, and she wants to know what causes menopausal weight gain. She wonders, is it due to fluid retention, a decrease in energy, increased appetite? How can it be avoided or reversed? Well, the same with menopause that we talked about before is there's always a correlation with both thyroid and a lack of testosterone. Women, just like men, need testosterone to make muscle. And if you're low in one set of hormones, you have to compensate the other way. Yes, when you're in the menopause, there will be some fluid retention because your adrenals are off. Yes, there will be a lack of energy. Yes, you're going to have soft, flabby muscles because you lose testosterone. Yes, the hot flashes are going to lower your vitamin D level. So this is all real, but you go back to the chapters in the book. Chapter 1 says take your vitamin D. Chapter 6 says take your hormone replacement. There's nothing wrong with a little bit of estrogen. There's nothing wrong with adding testosterone. I mean, we've got pictures on our website in in the bodybuilding section. 50 and 61-year-old women that 19-year-old boys are calling and knocking on the doors. The point is you can have a wonderful body at 50, 60, 70, or in Mary's case, she's almost 80. Yeah, that was remarkable. Remarkable. It doesn't have to be miserable. You don't have to be fat and 40 or older. Okay, it's just part of a hormonal situation we have to deal with, and we deal with by blocking the estrogens. Amen, brother. Hey, Connie from Marquette, Michigan, has a question I really like, and uh, it's interesting. Do women still emit pheromones after menopause? If not, could this have something to do with most men's desire to pursue younger women? Okay, step one. Yes, women can emit pheromones at any age. The study of pheromones is that most thought process were that these were derivatives of the adrenal hormone, DHEA. And over the years, I've tried DHEA, androstenedione, and a couple other derivatives to see if they made a change. But we found 15, 20 years ago that some women could change testosterone and start emitting pheromones. So I had a woman in the 50s, no sex drive. She hadn't had sex in six years. She started on the shot. She was a very, very plain, you know, five foot three, 165 pounds, gray hair. Mm-hmm. 
you know, you get the idea. And suddenly she's teaching senior high school kids and all the boys are coming up to talk to teach, okay? And then the principal, in the principal's office, someone stopped her, was married and asked her out. Anyway, the story goes on. She was emitting pheromones so much that she had four dates in three days. <laughs> so the bottom line is it is possible. And what I found on the new combination of the androgens, uh-huh. these women are emitting pheromones, at least 50% are noticing how men around them are reacting to the fact that they are secreting hormones and pheromones different and higher levels than they did in the 20s and 30s. So if a woman has good pheromones and a good sex drive, trust me, her menopausal partner isn't going to go elsewhere or he's going to be too tired to go elsewhere. The biggest problem is, at that point in time, is that he's got to keep up. Yes, if a man does not have a partner who's interested in sex, or is he isn't excited by her giving off pheromones, yeah, he might go looking for somewhere else. But my women patients in their 50s and 60s, you've already heard from them before, mm-hmm. their husbands are just tickled pink because they couldn't get this anywhere. Yeah, right. Uh, explain to us, for those of us who may not know, what are pheromones? Pheromones are the, just think of it as like an odor. It's actually a different type of release. It comes mm-hmm. from the hairy parts of the armpits or in the groin area. <laughs> if you think about a dog, a male dog, trying to get to a female dog through a wire fence, he's been hit by those pheromones. It drives him crazy. He's just got to have sex. All right? Now, you think about 18-year-old boys, you know, and, you know, they can... You know, go to the moon looking at a picture of a girl, okay? Mm-hmm. So the point is they have huge levels of pheromones affect themselves. Pheromones, you got four or five girls who are menstruating at the same time. Why? Because of pheromones. These are biological proteins or hormones that are at a subconscious level, okay? And when they're secreted, the male and the female are interested in sex, And so what's the relation, if there is any, between hormones and pheromones? If you don't have hormones, you don't have pheromones, okay? You have to have hormones of the right balance that's going to go ahead and get the glands inside your body where we don't know where the pheromones come from to secrete the pheromones. Okay, you got to have a spark plug before you can turn the car on. Gotcha. And hormones are the spark plugs. So is it safe to say as you age and your hormones decline, so do your pheromones? Perfect. You got it. I've simply got it. That's right. All right. It's that simple. Good. Thanks for that. Yeah, Thanks so for the, clearing it up for me. So the 60-year-olds who are on good doses of hormones are giving off pheromones, and we'll talk to one next week, the one who's doing the rollerblading. Yes. The young guys on the teams are calling her the cougar, not that she's interested, it's because <laughs> they're interested. That's good. That's good news. Tammy from St. Petersburg, Florida, wants to talk about supplements. She wonders what you recommend for healthier, younger-looking skin. And I know you offer one right here through your office that's amazing. Right. What happens is two different levels. There's an inside and an outside. So what happens is we have a product called New Face Solution that uh, uh, we've manufactured, and it has a small dose of estriol, which is female hormone. And it actually is FDA-approved at this level. And you can put it on your face, and lo and behold, increases the moisture content by 18% the first week. So moisture means less wrinkles, and that means looking younger. Then we have different products that you take internally. Those fish oils, the vitamins, the nutrients, the minerals, DMAE, 
hyaluronic acid, all our different proteins your body uses in the support of the skin. Uh, vitamin C, E, B, so we have a vitamin pack. And you take a vitamin pack once a day, and this is a regimen my wife's on, and she has both beautiful skin and everything else. And the bottom line, she takes her vitamin pack once a day, and she uses her moisturizer once a day with the eye serum. And, uh, you know, I won't tell her age, but um, Carolyn doesn't have any wrinkles. No, she doesn't. She looks marvelous. Yes, she does. And that last question segues perfectly into the next question from Maureen from Asheville, North Carolina. She wonders, how do you know if you're buying good supplements or not? Is price always a good indicator? And I would say maybe not. No, it really isn't. And uh, you know, one of the sub-jobs that uh, Carolyn has is she has a biochemical lab. And you can go ahead and buy the most expensive vitamins at uh, Neiman Marcus, and they're no better than the stuff you buy at GNC. So the bottom line is getting a high-quality product is more difficult. Now, some of the private lines like we have here, we, we have Biotics, and it's a very reasonable price line, uh, is uh, as good as any in the price range. Um, we hope in the future to come out with a product that is just going to show the highest blood levels of anything. Uh, and that's really the only way of measuring is how well is, is absorbed and uh, is it going to change the blood level? So no vitamins have ever done this. So therefore, it's hard to say that what you take works and let, if you take it. And my suggestion is through my office and website, we offer biotic products. It's all the United States is one of the largest vitamin lines only sold through doctor's offices. And I use these products when I don't have the special products we've manufactured. They certify those as 100% what they say is in the bottle, right? And they've been tested and they have over six distribution centers all of the United States. So this is a huge company, and it's all FDA-approved laboratories. Uh, they don't sell out to your normal stores. They sell directly through physicians, correct? It has to be through physicians because some, like the vitamin D drops, 2,000 drops per IU, you can't get them in a grocery store. You can't get them in a health food store. Only through physicians. And uh, if you're interested in that, that's available on Dr. Licken's website, which is usdoctor.com. Go there to learn more about those products. Go there to learn about all that Dr. Lichten talks about and stands for, all the hormonal therapy and uh, just a lot of other information. Good job putting that website together, Dr. Lichten. Thanks for doing that for all of us. Now, if you'd like to call Dr. Lichten and you'd like a consultation, he's available. You can reach him by calling 248-593-9999. Again, 248-593-9999. Don't forget... We have a new show every single Monday on iTunes, and we're very grateful for all of the new listeners, aren't we, Dr. Lichten? I mean, it's a treat to see that our numbers are in the uh, you know, five digits already, and we've never advertised, and iTunes says we're notable, and uh, we're getting notification from people who ask if they can link to our sites, and we're just happy to be able to spread the truth about medical practice, right. that there are doctors out there who really care and really will make your life hopefully better it's nice to be notable yes no, sir no question <laughs> as always dr Lichten, it's been a pleasure speaking with you and i look forward to our next show right here you can catch it on itunes or you can catch it at antiagingradio.com also if you know anyone going through a divorce why not mention divorcesourceradio.com it's your audio source for information about divorce that's divorcesourceradio.com 
And if you have a specific topic or question, we'll entertain it. We're going to have some more interesting topics in the next few weeks. One of the topics I'm interested in learning more about is thyroid. No question. A lot of patients with thyroid we can talk to. All right, good. So look forward to that. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We appreciate it. I'm Steve Peck for The Licton Lifestyle. I'll talk to you again next week. Stay healthy.